Well, as I was thinking about this week and knowing that it was Father's Day, I was thinking about what could I possibly give all the men of New Hope? And I came up with an idea. My gift to you is I'm going to teach on the Antichrist this morning. Okay? Yeah, because guys get that, right? It's like going to a man cave, you know? But we understand that. And we're going to look in depth at his nature and character. As I was thinking about how he pursues, especially as we're going to learn in the book of Revelation this morning, that as an executioner, he goes after the believers who live on the earth. I started thinking about um, one particular time I was being pursued. Believe it or not, there was a period of time when this was a finely tuned athletic body, and I played lots and lots of baseball. As a matter of fact, you know, playing all the way through my childhood and up through high school, and then trying out and and playing for college team, um, I discovered I could throw a baseball pretty well. And there was a particular time in in, uh, the month of February where my brother-in-law-to-be, my my sister's fiancé, came to visit us. And uh, where we were living in Whitehall, an abundance of snow over there on the lake shore in the wintertime, and um, I saw him and his brother coming out. His brother had come along with him. Now, an interesting part of the story is that his brother had just returned from Camp Pendleton where he went for basic training. So he came out of Camp Pendleton very beefed up and ready to take on the world. Well, these two guys were headed for their car and getting ready to leave our house, so I thought, I'll just check out my throwing arm and see how accurate I can be. So I picked up a snowball, and not intending actually to hit him in the head, I, I hit the Marine in the head, okay? And, you know, with his muscles out to here, he turns around, he's looking, where'd that come from? Well, no more did he turn around, I threw another one and it hit him in the face, Okay. <laughs> He very quickly honed in on me at that point. Now, I thought it would be playful, and I was right that um, my future brother-in-law, John, um, decided, okay, war's on, let's throw some snowballs. So they started chucking, and they could not hit me. I could have been a barn, and they could not hit me. But every single one that I threw either hit him in the face or in the neck, okay? So there's a point at which fun turns to danger, all right? The next couple I threw turned to danger, and they stopped throwing, turned and looked at each other and said, are you ready to get them? <laughs> and so I ran for the house and found my sister inside the house and hid behind her and, and said, please protect me. And all she said to them was, um, just be nice to them. <laughs> oh, what? There's no protection there. So they hauled me out of the house and, and pulverized me. I thought about how I was pursued when I was reading this. That, that's a humorous way. But Satan, as you learned in the last couple of weeks, turns now into being the pursuer of the people who confess Christ. And he will not treat it like a snowball fight. He is relentless and he executes, he beheads. You'll learn this morning that he has very unique characteristics as the one known as the beast or known in Revelation, as the one who carries the mark 666. When I think about Satan taking over an individual, and it's happened very few times, in Scripture we see individuals who are demon-possessed, but rarely do we see individuals who are Satan-possessed. The Antichrist will be controlled by Satan. You'll see an example up on the screen of one other individual who was possessed by Satan. John 13, 27 says this, As Judas took the bread, Satan entered into him. 
what you are about to do, do quickly, Jesus told him. If you've been raised in church, you're familiar with that moment in time. It's when Judas betrayed Jesus, turned him over to the Sanhedrin, the Pharisees, the Sadducees, the scribes, so that they could execute him. Satan's game has always been to wipe out God's people, trying to wipe out God himself. Of course, we know that Jesus willingly surrendered his life. We're told according to Scripture he could have called 10,000 angels, but he willingly submitted himself and was executed on the cross. So we see here an example of Satan taking over the life of an individual for the purpose of destruction. In the last couple of weeks, as we've looked at Satan and his activities, we've learned a couple of things in the six characteristics that he's shown up so far. So far, we saw the woman clothed with the sun in Revelation 12. That was Israel. We saw the red dragon. That was Satan. We saw the male child, Jesus, that Satan was trying to kill. We saw the archangel, Michael, go to war with Lucifer, throw him out of heaven, which will be in a future event. And then we see today this fifth individual, the beast from the sea, the one who rises up out of the nations, who is called the Antichrist. The outcome of the battle between Michael and Lucifer is, of course, that Satan arrived on planet Earth. So as we looked last week, we looked forward in time, we see this moment in time coming in the end times when Satan will find himself thrown to planet Earth, no longer having access to God, no longer able to accuse you as believers in Christ. And according to what we read last week, his wrath will be great. He will come upon the earth with great fury. So that's why it closed out last week with John writing, Woe to those who live on the earth and to the sea, because Satan has come upon you with great wrath, and he pulls out all the stops. Nothing holds him back. His battle plan is very simple. Exterminate the people of God. And he'll do that through the beast. Jesus said, when speaking of this moment in time, looking forward in time, in Matthew 24, he said, you'll have one choice at that moment in time, and that's to flee to the wilderness. Now, mind you, I believe this takes place after the church is removed. So what we're speaking of here are specifically believers on the planet Earth who have come to Christ after the tribulation has started. This is the way Jesus said it, Matthew 24, 22. Unless those days had been cut short, no life would have been saved. But for the sake of the elect, those days will be cut short. What you have in front of you today are a sheet, uh, little study notes if you picked them up when you came in this morning. On the back side of the sheet, I laid a sample one here, is a little timeline. And this timeline on the back of the sheet shows you where we're at in the midst of the tribulation. If you didn't get one this morning, you can get it later when you leave today. They're out there on the uh, table in the atrium. It'll help you to understand that we've studied so far the first half of the tribulation, and that's what you hold in front of you. Not the whole tribulation, the first half of it. So on one side, it's going to say mid-trib. That's the middle point. We've discovered up to this point that Satan is three times a loser. First of all, he failed to destroy Jesus, failed to destroy the man-child, Revelation 12 talked about. He's lost the war in heaven with Michael and the holy angels. He's thrown out of heaven with the fallen angels. And He's been unable to destroy Israel. That's been one of his greatest goals. So today, now, he pursues the believers through the mark of the beast, through 666. When Satan 
is able to rid the earth of all those who name the name of Christ, he will then accomplish his goal, which is to have all the earth worship him. He wants to be worshipped. Remember, that was his goal when he exalted himself to God's position and said, I will be as God. So as a result, he's cast from his position. That's been his desire throughout his existence, to be worshipped. So up until now, he's heading this federation of ten nations. You see that on the bottom of your chart. He's put this ten-nation conglomerate together on the planet Earth. He has been working in close cooperation with the false church. You'll learn about that in Revelation 17. And he's been operating as the friend of Israel. But as of today, no more. He will not be a friend to Israel, as you're going to learn. So this son of perdition now steps onto the world scene. That's what Scripture calls him, the son of perdition. Who is he? What does he look like? Well, here's a broad overview for you. A broad overview is this. He executes, he seeks to exterminate God's people. He rewrites history. He literally takes earth's history books, rewrites history to suit his purposes. He institutes a new worldwide religion in which people worship him, and he brings a reign of evil on the earth through a one-world empire. Now, that's a very broad overview. What we're going to do today is drill down and look at some specific characteristics of how can you identify the Antichrist. Were he to step on the world scene today, how would you know it? How would you be able to pick him out? We know that he won't walk up to a microphone and say, Hi, I'm the Antichrist. He's not going to do that. We have to identify him through characteristics. The descriptions of the Antichrist are not unique to Revelation. He's also written about in the book of Thessalonians. John wrote about him in 1 John. Jesus spoke about him and what his characteristics are about. If you go back to the Old Testament, you will find a description of the Antichrist through the prophet Daniel. He gave us some specifics about what he will look like. Here it is up on the screen, the first glimpse of the Antichrist. Daniel chapter 8 and verse 23. I'm going to take you to Daniel several times this morning. First of all, he says, a king will arise, insolent and skilled in intrigue. His power will be mighty, but not by his own power. He will destroy to an extraordinary degree and prosper and perform his will. He will destroy mighty men and the holy people. And through his shrewdness, he will cause deceit to succeed by his influence. And he will magnify himself in his heart. And he will destroy many while they are at ease. He will even oppose the prince of princes. First thing I notice is that he's very clever. You notice that it doesn't say when he goes to war, he will destroy many. It says specifically, he will destroy many while they are at ease. Meaning, people who are relaxed. Meaning, they've been invited into his social circle. People who assume they are his friends, relaxing, thinking all is well, and he will destroy. There's two specific words I want to hone in on from this description here. The first one that Daniel used is that he's insolent, and the next one he says he's skilled in intrigue. Well, what is insolent? The word is az, A-Z, it's a Hebrew word. Here's the definition for it. Strong, vehement, harsh, fierce, plus, greedy, mighty, strong, raging, Strong of face. 
That's an individual who wants his own way. That's what that means when it says vehement. He will not relent. He will not take no for an answer. This is a very strong personality. He's also, according to this passage, incredibly intelligent. Do you notice the next word, intrigue? The word is kidah, another Hebrew word. It means a puzzle. You like puzzles? You like to put puzzles together? This guy is a puzzler in his speech. Look at the definition for it. Hence, a trick, a conundrum, dark sayings, difficult questions, proverbs, riddles, perplexing insinuations. This is an individual who is a skilled politician, an excellent orator. He makes speeches that will blow people away. They will never have heard someone who speaks as skillfully as this individual does. We also discover that he is a negotiator. He is able to negotiate peace where no one else has been able to before. This, uh, particular, let's go back through this list. First of all, he's a king who will arise. He will be insolent. His power will be mighty. He will destroy. He's shrewd. He will cause deceit to succeed. He will magnify himself in his heart. And he will oppose the prince of princes. We're going to look at each of those as we go through it today. This verse that Daniel refers to next to show him as a negotiator shows that he is one who's able to make peace where no one else has been able to make peace before. He will actually be able to bring a peace treaty to the Middle East. Let me show you this verse. Daniel chapter 9 and verse 26. And he will make a firm covenant with the many for one week. But in the middle of the week, he will put a stop to sacrifice and grain offerings. On the wing of abominations will come one who makes desolate, even until a complete destruction. Can we just say right there, that's a confusing verse, isn't it? You look at it and go, what? What are they talking about? Okay, first of all, in prophetic literature, when you see a week referred to, it's talking about not seven days, but seven years. So this is the last week or the last seven years of planet Earth with the tribulation in place. So this is a prophetic stretch of seven years. And so according to this verse, what it's saying is in the middle of the seven years, meaning three and a half years into the seven-year week, he makes a pact at the beginning, but he breaks the pact halfway through. In the middle of the week, he will put a stop to sacrifice and grain offerings. That's speaking of the Jewish temple that we studied about. In that, the Jews are carrying out their sacrifices. But in the middle of it, he cuts off all sacrifices and says, no more. You will now worship me. I am the one who is to be worshipped. And at that point in time, he begins attacking the believers in God. So his purpose, first of all, through this seven-year thing, halfway through, is to stop the sacrifices and begin attacking God's people for one specific purpose, so that God's kingdom cannot arrive. If he can stop the sacrifices, kill all the believers, he believes he can stop the arrival of the kingdom. Jesus spoke about this very thing back in Matthew 24. I know over and over again you've heard me say to you, Read Matthew 24. Well, I'm going to say it again. Read Matthew 24, especially later today if you get a chance. That's Jesus talking about the last days in Matthew chapter 24. Here's an example of it, Matthew 24:15. Therefore, 
when you see the abomination of desolation, speaking of the Antichrist, which was spoken of through Daniel the prophet, standing in the holy place, let the reader understand, then those who are in Judea must flee to the mountains. So what Jesus is saying, halfway through that prophetic week of seven years, at the three and a half year point, when you see the Antichrist appear, run. You have no other choice. Get out of Dodge. Leave the area. He will begin persecuting. Do you notice that Jesus refers to Daniel? Jesus quotes Daniel. He says, the prophet Daniel wrote about this. Well, I think then that's pretty important that we go back and look at what Daniel said. Daniel said this in chapter 11, verse 36. This is a very important description of the Antichrist. Daniel eleven thirty-six. Then the king will do as he pleases, and he will exalt and magnify himself above every god, and will speak monstrous things against the God of gods. And he will prosper until the indignation is finished, for that which is decreed will be done. He will show no regard for the God of his fathers or for the desire of women, nor will he show regard for any other God, for he will magnify himself above them all. Notice this next thing. But instead, he will honor a God of fortresses. It's talking about a military man. He will exalt military strength. A God whom his fathers did not know, he will honor him with gold, silver, costly stones, and treasures. He will take action against the strongest of fortresses with the help of a foreign God. He will give great honor to those who acknowledge him and will cause them to rule over the many and will parcel out land for a price. Okay, everything you've read so far, everything you've seen on screen is what individuals in New Testament times had to work with. They didn't have the writings of the book of Revelation. You do. So they had to study the Old Testament. And then when Jesus arrived, Jesus began talking about the Antichrist. And then when John arrived, God gave him the revelation to help us understand what's going to happen in the last days. And so where we go now is to Revelation chapter 13 and verse 1. So if you have your Bible with you, go ahead and open up to that particular book. And that's what we're going to be looking at here in detail in the next few minutes. Revelation chapter 13, verse 1, you'll see it up on the screen as well. This is where Satan calls out his superman on planet earth. And the dragon stood on the sand of the seashore. Then I saw a beast coming up out of the sea, having ten horns and seven heads. And on his horns were ten diadems. And on his heads were blasphemous names. This is a much more complete image of this individual. Now you might look at it and go, what? I don't get that. Well, let me help you understand that. This imagery, first of all, this sea and the sand of the seashore, when it's used in Scripture, is always referring to Gentile nations. And so this is what John sees. He sees the dragon on the seashore straddling over the nations as though he possesses them, as though he owns the nations, and calling forth or summoning up out of the sea of nations this one that's called the beast. So John's watching this unfold, and he sees this therion, this beast, coming up out of the nations. What's a therion? Here's the definition for it. A dangerous animal, venomous, wild beast, does not mean that he is an animal, 
What it means is that he acts like an animal. He is one who has animal-like behavior. He's ferocious. He's predatory. Understand, this represents both his kingdom and his person. So we're talking about an individual who's vicious. He's like a monster. He consumes everything he sees. And Scripture views this last empire as being inseparable from its leader. The leader and the empire are one. This is the behavior of this kingdom that he rules. So what I see here, first of all, is a picture that he's a Gentile. He's not a Jew. Many theologians believe he will be of European descent. He will be one who will come from the ten federated nations of the European area. It also indicates that the Antichrist is a man. No possibility of him being a woman. It's always personal pronouns, he, him, and his. So we've got this gifted orator, a politician, who's willing to rewrite history, very powerful, rises almost out of obscurity, comes on the scene very quickly. In the beginning of the tribulation, he's a peacemaker. He brings peace to the earth, and people want to follow him. He's incredibly intelligent and charming, and I believe physically very handsome. People want to be in his presence. So this Antichrist who is a man has something specific according to this verse. He looks at the beast and he says, this beast has ten horns, seven heads, and ten diadems. Now we understand, obviously, this is symbolic language, but do you notice this family resemblance? What did it say about the dragon, about Satan, in Revelation chapter 12? Let me read it to you. Revelation 12.3, Behold, a great red dragon having seven heads, ten horns, and on his head were seven diadems. So you see the family resemblance there between the beast, the son of Satan, or the son of perdition, and Satan himself. Specifically, these horns mean something in Scripture very important. I want you to see the symbolism for it by taking you back to the Old Testament. 1 Samuel 2 is where the first one comes from. Those who contend with the Lord will be shattered. Against them he will thunder in the heavens. The Lord will judge the ends of the earth, and he will give strength to his king, and will exalt the horn of his anointed. There's a use for it there that you see throughout the Old Testament. Here's another one you might be more familiar with. Psalm 18.2 The Lord is my rock and my fortress and my deliverer, my God, my rock in whom I take refuge, my shield and the horn of my salvation, my stronghold. Keren is the word that's used there for horn. And symbolically, it always means power, might, associated with military strength. One who's got dominance. It's an image of someone who has power and authority. So when you think of people in the Old Testament times being assembled as a people, what did they blow? They blew the horn. When you think of people going to war, what did they do? They blew the horn. As recently in our nation as the Civil War, when they called the infantry into battle, they blew a horn. A horn in Scripture is always associated with military strength and great power. So this Antichrist rises from these ten horns, these ten mighty nations, from the Sea of the Gentiles, and specifically rises to a position of prominence. And under his control will be these ten ruling nations. This is what Scripture says again in Daniel chapter 7 about this. 
Thus he said, the fourth beast will be a fourth kingdom on the earth, which will be different from all the other kingdoms and will devour the whole earth and tread it down and crush it. As for the ten horns, out of his kingdom, ten kings will arise. Ten powerful kings who rule over the entire planet. And this Antichrist rules over these ten nations. Now we see also here that there's seven heads represented. The seven heads are merely Egypt, Assyria, Babylon, Medo-Persia, Greece, and Rome. Previous world empires. And the seventh world empire is the Antichrist. The one that's to come in the future. So with all that in mind, let's step now into verse 2. We'll see what his image is like, what his characteristics are like. And the beast which I saw was like a leopard, and his feet were like those of a bear, and his mouth like the mouth of a lion, and the dragon gave him his power and his throne and great authority. So we see this one who's enveloped with the power of the Persians, the Greeks, and the Babylonians. And you say, Mark, where do you get that from? Well, that comes from the book of Daniel, in which most historians, when they look back, understand that the Greeks, the Persians, and the Babylonians were always associated with being a lion, a bear, and a leopard. Well, what was unique about those particular empires? First of all, the Babylonians, they're called a lion, they were fierce and they had this consuming power. A bear, strength and stability. That's the Persians. A leopard, think of Alexander the Great. He's a Greek. How quickly did Alexander the Great sweep across the then known world, taking for himself continent after continent after nation and drawing it under his control? That's why he's called a leopard. He's vicious and he's very, very swift. So this is confirmed that these first three are Greek, Babylonian, and Persian strength enveloping this individual. He's incredibly powerful. And here's the fourth one. It comes from Daniel chapter 7 again. Daniel chapter 7 and verse 7. After this, I kept looking in the night visions, and behold, a fourth beast, dreadful and terrifying and extremely strong, and it had large iron teeth. It devoured and crushed and trampled down the remainder with its feet, and it was different from all the beasts that were before it, and it had ten horns. Now, Scripture says in verse 2 that the dragon gave his beast the power, the authority, and the throne to rule. So we know that the dragon, being Satan, is the one who's really behind the Antichrist, don't we? He's the one who sets him up. 2 Thessalonians 2.9 says, He is Satan's man. The one whose coming is in accord with the activity of Satan, with all power and signs and false wonders. Now here's a specific detail. Because he is empowered by Satan, no human being will be able to stand against him. No angels will bail out humans during that period of time. There will be no defense mechanism. God is removing the restraints. According to 2 Thessalonians 2.9, God takes the handcuffs off and gives him free reign upon planet earth. He answers to no one. And so John sees this one who's roaming the earth, destroying left and right, answering to no one, 
And some individual apparently believes that he can kill the Antichrist because there appears to be an assassination attempt upon his life. Look with me at verse 3. It's an astounding event. I saw one of his heads as if it had been slain, and his fatal wound was healed, and the earth, the whole earth was amazed and followed after the beast. So John saw the head being slain, what appeared to be fatally. Whether or not this is a fake resurrection or not, we don't know. He may not have been slain fatally, but apparently the world believes that he's been resurrected, completely filling the position of being the Antichrist, even mimicking Jesus' death and resurrection. This comes from Revelation 17.8. Let me show you this on the screen. It's kind of a complicated verse. The beast that you saw was, meaning he was alive, and is not, and is about to come up out of the abyss and go to destruction. And those who dwell on the earth, whose name have not been written in the book of life from the foundation of the world, will wonder when they see the beast that he was, meaning he was alive, he is not, he's now dead, and he will be resurrected. Speaking of what appears to be an assassination attempt. So this individual, who's already incredibly powerful, popular all over the earth, has now turned himself to a position where he can be worshipped. So look at verse 4. As a result of this death, they worshipped the dragon because he gave his authority to the beast, and they worshipped the beast, saying, Who is like the beast, and who is able to wage war with him? Our guy can't die! Yeah! We got a winner! Who can wage war with him? He's so powerful, he can't even be killed. And they begin to worship him. And this is what Satan's been looking for. See, he's not content with the applause of the crowd. And the crowd has been applauding him up to this point. What he wants is their worship. That's why he ascended God's position and saying, I will be as God. I want the world to worship me. Respect is not enough for him. He demands worship. And so the people are in awe and they say, Who is like the beast? It's always his intention to draw worship away from God and to himself. So here we go with verse 5. There was given to him a mouth speaking arrogant words and blasphemies, and authority to act for 42 months was given to him. And he opened his mouth in blasphemies against God to blaspheme his name and his tabernacle, that is, those who dwell in heaven. This is an individual who exhibits total disregard for the Ancient of Days. When you hear individuals swear and take God's name in vain, let's say you're walking through the mall and you're going to a store or you're at work and you hear someone say, God damn, they are, yes, misusing God's name, but they aren't doing what Scripture refers to when it says taking God's name in vain. To take God's name in vain means to speak against his character and his nature. So when someone blasphemes God, they say, he's not someone you can trust. He'll never come through for you. That's what you see taking place here. He speaks against the character and the nature of God. Scripture says it's outrageous. He speaks so violently against the God of gods in the ancient of days that he blasphemes his name. Because 
This one, this Antichrist, is the ultimate self-promoter. He's constantly talking himself up. He is so arrogant that look what he does according to 2 Thessalonians 2.4. He actually takes his seat in the temple of God, displaying himself as being God, telling everyone, worship me. I'm God. Worship me. This is the absolute embodiment of evil. And he draws everyone's attention to himself. We see, according to that passage, that this is going to go on for three and a half years. Forty-two months is what it says. There's limitations, though, that are put on him. Look with me at the next verse, verse 7. It was also given to him to make war with the saints and to overcome them. And the authority over every tribe and and people and tongue and nation was given to him. As you look at this passage, you'll see that things are given to him. Who are they given by? Ultimately, by God. Satan is empowering him. But God controls everything, does he not? So if God controls everything, there's nothing outside of his control. He isn't looking at these circumstances going, oh, I can't believe I missed that one. No, he absolutely understands this is his book. He's telling us what this individual is going to be like, drawing our attention and saying, everyone's going to worship him. And he's going to do something specific. You'll see in verse 7, it's given to him to make war with the saints. The result will be a worldwide slaughter of Christians. He will seek out to destroy and behead, decapitate, whatever he has to do, destroy believers. But Scripture says here that he overcomes them. It doesn't mean that he overcomes their faith. We saw in Revelation chapter 6 that the martyrs were standing before the throne, exalting God, saying, how long before you avenge our blood on the earth? Do you remember that? So what we see here is this one attacking our brothers and sisters in Christ, but he's not able to destroy their faith. Do you remember what we looked at last week? When we looked at Romans chapter 8, what did Paul say to you as believers in Jesus Christ? You cannot be separated from Jesus Christ. Look with me on the screen, Romans 8.38. Neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor principalities, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor any other created thing will be able to separate us from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. You notice that he says, nor angels? Satan is a fallen angel. He cannot separate you from the love of God if you are a true believer in Jesus Christ. So this one here, this Antichrist, in achieving military strength and political strength, goes one more. He eliminates all world religions. No more Buddhists, no more Muslims, no more Hindus. Nothing except the worship of him. And the Christians are executed because they're following after Jesus Christ. All the inhabitants of the earth worship him. Look at verse 8 as this wraps up. All who dwell on the earth will worship him. Everyone whose name has not been written from the foundation of the world in the book of life of the Lamb who has been slain. What did Jesus say to those who are believers in him? Rejoice that your names are where? Recorded in heaven. Would that not be a cool book to look at? 
I'd love to see that book and go to the K section and see Mark Kring written down in there. He says, your name has been recorded. This is what it says, Luke 10.20. Rejoice that your names are recorded in heaven. Jesus promised us something. He said that if we're the nikao, if we're the overcomers, that our names will not be blotted out of the Lamb's book of life. Do you remember that? Revelation 3.5. He who overcomes, I will not erase his name from the book of life, and I will confess his name before my Father and before his angels. So very clearly, we know who this book belongs to. It belongs to the Lamb who has been slain, and he doesn't let anybody have access to it. No one gets to go in there with an eraser. Satan can do everything he wants to destroy people, but it is not within his power to remove believers who belong to Jesus Christ and destroy their faith. So here's verse 9, how it ends. If anyone has an ear, let him hear. If anyone is destined for captivity, to captivity he goes. If anyone kills with the sword, with the sword he must be killed. Here is the perseverance and the faith of the saints. This is an astounding vision that John has just had. And it ends with some proverbial wisdom. Imagine that you live in the time of the tribulation. Imagine that you are a believer in the last days and you're in hiding. And someone has had the good sense to bring with them a copy of the New Testament to this hiding place where you're trying to get away from these executioners. The earth is in complete turmoil. And you've got a copy of the New Testament and you come to this passage where Jesus said something specifically to those who live in the last days. Look at what he says. If anyone has an ear, let him hear. I'll tell you, first of all, I think that's a confirmation for us that the church is taken away before the tribulation. Every time you see this phrase, if anyone has an ear, let him hear, it's always followed up by this phrase, what the Spirit says to the churches. Here, it doesn't say that because the church is already gone. The church has been taken. But Jesus is speaking to those who have come to faith in Jesus Christ after the tribulation has begun. And so he's speaking to individuals. Let him hear. What do they need to hear? If they're in hiding, Jesus says, if anyone is destined for captivity, to captivity he goes. Meaning, if you're destined to be captured and Satan is going to execute you, Allow him to carry out his act. Jesus modeled this. He says, don't fight, don't resist, but rather let it carry out. And if someone is going to be killed with a sword, with a sword he must be killed. Let me give you an example of Jesus doing this very same thing. In the book of 1 Peter, Peter wrote about how Jesus went to the cross. This is what it says, verse 21. For you have been called for this purpose, since Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example for you to follow in his steps. Verse 22, who committed no sin, nor was any deceit found in his mouth, and while being reviled, he did not revile in return. While suffering, he uttered no threats, but kept entrusting himself to him who judges righteously. So Jesus is speaking to these last day captives, people who are in hiding and saying to them, if you're destined for captivity, go to prison. Let him take you. If you're destined to be executed, let him take you. It has no 
power over you. That's why it ends by saying, here is the perseverance and the faith of the saints. The saints throughout generations have hung on and carried the name of Jesus proudly. They haven't said, okay, I give, all right, I'll worship the Antichrist. He's saying, hang in there. Be tough right to the very end. Here's a warning here. Specifically, this warning is, if anyone has an ear, let him hear. Meaning, every single age group that will ever read that. If you were living in the times of John, when this was written, the Romans were in control. Domitian was the Caesar. Nero had died, Domitian took over, and he said, you will proclaim me as God at Dominus Nostres Domitian. Claiming Domitian to be Lord and God. So you had a choice when this was written. Jesus is God or Domitian is God. If you chose Jesus, Domitian would have you executed. So it applied to this day and age. You either say Caesar is Lord or Jesus is Lord. In the last days, it will be the same thing. You either say Jesus is Lord or the Antichrist is Lord. That's what he's calling us to recognize. Now remember, the Antichrist will come as a peacemaker. He's an incredibly skilled, gifted politician. An orator like the world has never seen. Remarkably intelligent. People ask me all the time, do you believe that the Antichrist is in power right now in some world government and just has not risen to power? Well, if he is, he's masking his intelligence very well. Because you don't see a lot of world leaders that demonstrate the kind of intelligence that Scripture is speaking of. He's incredibly handsome, very charming, a gifted politician, a warmongerer. Do I believe that the Antichrist could be alive on planet Earth right now? Absolutely, yes. I believe as I examine Scripture and look at the events of the last days and what I see going on and the converging points that are meeting, He could be five years old. He could be 20 years old and going to college. I have no idea. God could kick the can down the road another 500 years and he hasn't been born yet. But based on the circumstances of what we see happening in the world around us, we'd have to say the conditions have never been more ripe than what they are for this individual to rise to world prominence. Here's a reminder for you, a summary of what we looked at today. This is good to keep in mind for where we're headed next week. The first thing is, he rises from the sea. means he comes up out of the nations. He's a Gentile. He resembles the dragon, meaning his origin. He's got his power source. His composite features speak of his characters. He's like a leopard. He's like a bear. He's like a lion. He's dragon-empowered. That's the source of his power. He's wounded to death but healed, meaning... Could be a counterfeit assassination. Not sure about that. He blasphemes God for 42 months. He's full of arrogance. He makes war against the believer seeking to destroy. And next week you're going to discover how he carries out the mark of the beast, 666, and forces all who follow him to wear the mark of the beast either on their right hand or on their forehead. Now that you've got all this information in mind, let me take you back to the book of Daniel to read you a couple verses that'll make much more sense to you now that you've heard all that you've heard. Let me take you back to the book of Daniel. You see on the screen, Daniel chapter 7 and verse 23. Thus he said, speaking of the Antichrist, 
The fourth beast will be a fourth kingdom on the earth, which will be different from all the other kingdoms and will devour the whole earth and tread it down and crush it. As for the ten horns, out of this kingdom ten kings will arise, and another will arise after them. And he will be different from the previous ones and will subdue three kings. He will speak out against the Most High and wear down the saints of the Highest One. He will intend to make alterations in times and in law, and they will be given into his hand for a time, times, and a half a time. Three and a half years. This is the last part. But the court will sit for judgment, and his dominion will be taken away, annihilated and destroyed forever. Then the sovereignty, the dominion, and the greatness of all the kingdoms under the whole heaven will be given to the people of the saints of the highest one. His kingdom will be an everlasting kingdom, and all the dominions will serve and obey him. Who's the his, church? Who's the his when it says his kingdom will be an everlasting one? It's Jesus Christ. That's right. So the Antichrist end has already been written. God knows what it looks like. Martin Luther caused us to sing about it last week. For lo, his doom is sure. He will come to an end. In the meantime, we have a responsibility. You as the church representing Jesus Christ have a responsibility to tell those who do not know this truth about what is coming and what the ultimate salvation can be found in Jesus Christ alone. Let me pray for you. Father, we come before you recognizing that this is incredibly heavy material. And admittedly, it's cumbersome, Father. It makes our hearts heavy. Were it not for the reminder that you have control over everything and nothing escapes your attention and that ultimately your dominion will reign eternally, we would be despairing. But we have no reason to despair because you are in control of everything. You've showed us what the future will look like. You've helped us to understand. So, Father, we ask that you help us to translate this into action. Men and women and students in this room who need the power of your Holy Spirit to be more bold. We recognize the promise that we have the Holy Spirit, Father, but we ask for a greater degree of strength, a courage to tell people who do not believe or perhaps even think this to be foolishness. Father, we ask that you would work through us. Help us to speak into individuals' lives, but to do it with mercy and with grace. God, we ask this in the name of our soon-coming King, the Lord Jesus Christ. Amen. Have an excellent week.